Father Chad Rippinger, our speaker tonight, a um, good and holy priest to share some fellowship with him. I'd like to welcome him here to Sacred Heart Parish and uh, to our Authenticum Lecture. I'm told by Mike Tober that this is the first time that we have bust the seams, as he puts it, of Sibelak uh, Hall. Uh, it's a good problem to have, especially since we have this nice church that's available to us. Father Chad was originally ordained in 1997 as a member of the priestly fraternity of St. Peter. Uh, he served as exorcist of the diocese of Tulsa, Oklahoma from 2012 to 2016. He was called to found a new society of priests, the Doloran Fathers, also known as the Society of the Most Sorrowful Mother, which is located in the Archdiocese of Denver. He has a PhD in philosophy and a master's degree in theology from Holy Apostles Seminary in Cromwell, Connecticut. Some of Father Rippinger's books include Deliverance Prayers for Use by the Laity, Magisterial Authority, The Morality of the Exterior Act in the Writings of St. Thomas Aquinas, The Binding Force of Tradition, which he was kind enough to sign for me today, and Introduction to the Science of Mental Health, uh, which are published all by Census Traditionis. I'd like to welcome Father to uh, Sacred Heart Parish and to Authenticum today, and I hope you give him your attention. Shall we start with a prayer? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Direct, O Lord, all our actions by thy holy inspirations and carry them on by thy gracious assistance, so that every prayer and work of ours may begin from thee and by thee, be happy unto Christ our Lord, amen. Our Lady of divine grace, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. The topic tonight of the conference is the effects of um, the angelic on the fight or battle for the faith. And so what I'd like to do is break it down into two parts. The first is to talk about a um, little bit about faith, but then how demons can actually block our faith what they're doing in the church in order to block the advance of the faith, and what they're doing in relationship to even parishes and things of that sort. So we get a sense of what they can do in order to block or to wage war against the faith. The second is to point out something that's very key. Everything that demons do is an inversion. We call it the diabolic inversion. It's an inversion of what God does, and what the saints do, and what the angels do. So literally every single thing that you ever see them doing is an inversion to that, because their choice, when they made their choice, their basically their choice was to not do the will of God, to, not, to basically reject God, reject their assigned task, a task, etc. So they, there is this absolute negation of it, and that's what their will became fixed in. So if you actually look at St. Thomas's discussion of the angels, he says there were the three, he called, they referred to them as the three instances, and then after the three instances, they have a series of what they call instances, and they don't, they're not in time, because time is, the, is defined as that which has a beginning and an end. It's the measurement of motion of that which has a beginning and an end, is the full definition. Whereas the angels have a beginning, but they have no end. And so they're in what we call the avum. Now, these, the avum is broken into sequence of events, and these sequences are called instances. And the first instances, in the first instance, the angels were created, um, the entire hierarchy of angels were created all at once. We're talking literally billions of angels instantaneously created. And how we know there's billions? Well, we know that just from the lowest hierarchy, just one part of that hierarchy it's all of the angels that were created just to be guardian angels, and that's only one part of it. And there's been 20 billion people, they figure, that have been uh, alive or being created since the beginning. So we're talking literally in the billions. They're all created. When they were created, they were created, they're not like human beings. They don't take time to have to think about something. All they have to do is think of a concept, and they fully exhaust everything there is to know about that concept to the degree of their intelligence. So they instantaneously exhaust it. This is one of the ways, actually, as an exorcist, you can do a diagnostic. 
If you know someone is faking or you think they're faking, you can just ask them a question that you know is going to take a little bit of thought for a human being. And if they stop and say, well, I think it, they're not possessed. Because the demons will immediately come back with its X or its Y. They don't think. The only time they'll pause is if they don't, if you're not speaking coherently, or if the way you're speaking is such that it can be interpreted in so many different ways they're not even sure what you're saying, or you're asking a question that they, that they literally do not know the answer, that God did not communicate that to them. So when they were created, God infused in them all of the essences of created things. That means they knew everything there was to know about trees, dogs, human beings, you name it, they knew everything. They knew everything about it. So when they were created, God created them into an act of knowing. And in that first concept that they considered was contained who God was. They had perfect metaphysical knowledge of God. Who God was, what he was asking of them. He, was also, he also infused in them that at that same time, so they saw the same thing, who they were, what their assigned task was what reward they would receive if they were faithful, what punishment they would receive if they were not faithful. They were also given knowledge of the incarnation in a trinity, St. Thomas says, because they were created in a state with um, faith, hope, and charity, so that they actually knew that Christ was going to become incarnate. They didn't know which person it was. That's why in the beginning of Scriptures, you read this in the beginning of the Gospels, they're not really sure who this guy is. But then once he starts doing something, they just deduce it has to be this one that we know is coming. They also have an infu- they had a, a knowledge regarding to the faith of the Blessed Trinity. So they know there's a Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you, if you really get a chance to, uh, to have a chance to, to beat it out of Satan, his real beef, his particular beef is with God the Father specifically. Because God the Father chose who was going to have what in heaven, and he was not pleased with what he was being offered. Okay. So all of that was instantaneously, they fully, fully comprehend that. So that when they make their choice, it's a full act of the will. There's no half-heartedness with them. With human beings, the reason why we can be half-hearted is because we're pretty clueless. That's why. And so, as a result... The demons, when they, when they make that choice and it's full volitional consent, it means that their will becomes absolutely fixed in the thing that they choose. They are incapable now at this point to choose anything contrary to what they chose in the beginning. Okay, why is this important? Because the angels, when they were created were given the knowledge of revelation, a majority of it, not all of it. So they actually knew that Christ was going to become incarnate. Some of them had a great deal of knowledge. Some of them actually knew the interior, lives of our la- the interior life of Our Lady, what particular aspects, what suffering she would go through, the various mysteries of her life, etc. They knew all sorts of things were going to happen. You also have to remember, because some of them were created to have the task of guarding certain human beings, they actually collectively, not uh, um, if you take individuals, they didn't know as much, and they kept information from each other, but collectively they had a great deal of knowledge about the flow of human history, not all of it. They had a, a general understanding that this is what was going to happen generally, okay? Just because they knew this person was going to be born and he was going to do these particular things, but they, demons have this theory that knowledge is power. Actually, knowledge isn't power, but that's a whole philosophical topic for another conference, okay? But it basically boils down to they, their attitude is knowledge is power, and so even the lower-level demons will keep information away from the higher-level demons. And you can even see this, and sometimes they, uh, and they like doing that, too. They especially like the fact that sometimes the higher-level demons will get a shellacking because they didn't know what they knew, and they just take a lot of delight in that, right? Okay. But that meant that they, they had knowledge of the Incarnation, and the Trinity, and those things, the essentials that pertain to revelation. And then because they have the infused virtue of faith, they understand what that is. But because they fully exhaust all of that, they also have a perfect knowledge of the inversion of all aspects of the faith. And they also understand, because they have perfect knowledge of human uh, nature, they understand human psychology perfectly except one thing, grace. When God gives someone actual grace, they don't know when it's going to come 
and the form it's going to take. And so it's, it's one of those uh, factors that, as human beings, puts us above them in the spiritual battle. It gives us an advantage that they don't have, even though in all other areas we're at a disadvantage. Okay. So this means that the demons know exactly how to subvert every single aspect of the faith, both in the church in general and in each one of us. They know how to do that. However, it doesn't mean that God gives them the permission to do so. One of the things that you learn as an exorcist is that God has absolute, absolute control over every iota of the spiritual battlefield, literally every iota. We see this in the context of possession. I give this example often, gave it last night, in fact. It goes down to this. When this one time, the first time I noticed this is this woman who was possessed, the demon was possessing her lower back. So I commanded him to tell me, what's the story with the lower back? And he says, I don't know. Said, what do you mean you don't know? Of course, by the way, I, when I put it colloquially in their exchange, it's actually very formal. It's me beating it out of him, actually. So I said to him, what do you mean you don't know? And he said, when I entered, Christ restricted me to this part of the body. As you go on, you find out, even in cases of possession, who can possess, how many possessors they can be, which parts of the body they can possess, what kind of manifestations they're permitted, which preternatural signs are they are permitted to do, how long the manifestations can last, what, what the degree of the manifestation, again, what they're actually able to communicate, whether they can use other languages or not, because even though they have the, infu the infused knowledge of all languages that have ever existed, they are not capable, they, that God restricts them in how they're going to do that. Okay, what languages they can actually speak. Okay. So why is this important in relationship to the spiritual battle? It means that even when we're fighting for the Catholic faith, which we are right now, let's face it, demons know exactly what orthodoxy is, and they're doing a great job of eroding it in the Catholic Church. And they'll do everything they can to derail people. But I always tell people, every demon is a Catholic. Every demon is a Catholic. You never hear a demon say, well, you know, when I heard that as a, if I accepted Jesus Christ as my person, Lord, and Savior, that I would be saved. I just couldn't accept that. You never hear them talking like a Protestant. Right? Not that they didn't come up with Protestantism, but they just don't talk like Protestants. In fact, what you find is, is that every single demon fell in relationship to a specific aspect of some Catholic doctrine. Every one of them. And so this is one of the reasons why they fight against it, because they rejected it. Okay. So how do they do that? Okay, we've got to talk a little bit about how human beings make an act of faith. Faith is an infused virtue in the possible intellect. Don't worry, there's no exam, but I will explain it. Okay. It's an infused virtue in the possible intellect by which we give assent to the deposit of faith. Okay. What does that mean concretely? Well, there's different parts of the intellect. Part of it's the brain, but the brain isn't the totality of our intellect. We have the ability to self-reflect, think of abstract concepts, etc. And these are not things that are done materially. They're not done by the brain. The brain does certain other things. The brain provides imagery, associations, memory, and things of this sort. But there's certain aspects that we actually, like making an act of judgment, is part of this possible intellect, this immaterial part of the intellect. So God infuses in our intellect the ability, that's what faith does, it gives, by when we say we can give assent to some, to the teachings of the church, that is to revelation. What that means is, is that faith gives us the ability to see the truth of what the church believes. That's why St. Thomas says, if you reject a single truth of the Catholic religion, it corrupts your virtue of faith, and the only thing you're left with is opinion. And we're seeing that today in the church. Everybody's got their own opinion. Everybody thinks that what they're to believe is at their discretion. When in point, in fact, our relationship with God is entirely on his terms. Entirely on his terms. So... What does this mean concretely? So when God gives us this infused virtue of faith, however, we do need the imagery in order to, St. Thomas says, in order to understand things in this life. 
Anything that is physical, because Adam and Eve committed their sin by eating a piece of fruit, they used their bodies to commit the sin, and that meant that their bodies fell under the dominion of the diabolic. And subsequently, as a temporal punishment due to their sin, so are we. And that means that demons have access to our memory, our imagination, our emotions, the part of the brain that has the ability to make associations, and that part of that ability is to put a perspective on what we're thinking, etc. And this means that they can influence that. So what demons actually do when they're fighting against the faith, the first thing that they'll do is cause certain blockages to the lower faculties or even emotionally in relationship to a doctrine of the church so that it's hard for the person to give assent to the truth of it. They have a hard time seeing that it's true. One case that I actually had where Satan was the possessor, it's the only case I've ever had that I actually think was telling the truth. Usually when demons say, I'm Satan, you're like, yeah, I've seen him, you ain't him. All right. But they do this because they're trying to bluff because they think that if you think if Satan's one of the possessors or Lucifer or Beelzebub, which is another name for Satan, that somehow or another you're like, oh boy, this is going to be a hard case. That's not true at all. In fact, some of the easiest cases of liberation have, been, has, have involved Lucifer. So it doesn't really mean that. But they, they are hoping that you'll take the bait. But their ability to block this, so in this particular case, the woman that was possessed by Satan actually... Could she, the demon kept blocking her ability to see that God would damn somebody for all eternity. Now, I know that we've heard this stuff that the, you know, that, oh, well, you know, it's the theory of uh, origin, the father of the church who said, well, you know, maybe in the end that the, the demons will actually be given a grace of conversion and that they'll actually change their position and actually accept God's grace, and they'll all get to go to heaven. And so in the end, everybody goes to heaven. That was formally condemned by Pope Vigilius. He formally condemned it by saying that if you believe, if you believe that, this, that the condemnation for those in hell is only for a time anathema sit. And that meant that it was a formal condemnation of that proposition. And the demons will admit as much. When you're dealing with them in session, the fact that their punishment is going to last for all eternity, they, it just, it's brutal on them because they, this state that they're in, they know it's never going to end. Never going to end. And that itself is kind of a slow compounding over the course of time. St. Thomas Aquinas says in his commentary on Peter Lombard's sentences that the demons actually, their suffering accidentally increases for all eternity. All eternity. It's only going to get worse. Okay. So he was blocking her ability because they can block the lower faculties from being able to, pre to uh, present or to muster up the proper images that are necessary for us to make the judgment to see the truth of the Catholic faith. They can also block people in their... So they can actually block people's ability to see that the, tr the church is what the church teaches is true. You can tell this just by looking at some of the members of the magisterium. Obviously, there's some blockage somewhere. Right. But when it comes to, it's not just intellectually they can block us. They can also block people from even leading their Catholic faith. And the way they do this is twofold. One, they incite emotions in people so that people will choose a path opposite of what they know they should be doing. One of the ones I always recommend to parents is if you have a son or a daughter who's dating somebody who you know is not good for them, there's a very simple solution. Start saying a binding of prayer against any demon that's keeping them together. Demons can actually make people have amorous feelings for each other. And as a result of that, people will very often, because the person that they're with is not of good morals, then they stop leading a good Catholic life, etc. So they can literally derail people just by the emotions that they incite in people, so that they actually block people's living of their Catholic faith. By the way, it's like clockwork. Virtually every parent comes back within three to four weeks and says they broke up. But that tells you a lot of times that people's relationships are not rooted in God, they're not rooted in the Catholic faith, they're not rooted in reality. Now, before people who are married say, that's the problem with my marriage. <laughs> you always have to presume, if you're married, okay, that it's God's will, okay.
So that being said, they can block people's ability to emotionally engage in relationship to a living, their, living, living their faith. There's two aspects to this. One is we know this is the case, right? When we sit there, you know, and you have a politician who's a pro abort right? You know, all the bishops got together and they're all writing their hands. Are, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We got all these pro-abortion politicians. Hello? All you have to do is, in fact, it, it's a good thing I'm not a bishop because I think they would run me out on a rail, because I would literally look, I would literally look at the, uh, I'd get up and insist on being listened to. I'd stand and I would look at the bishop of the, of the diocese that's in Delaware and say, the only reason we're here discussing this is because you didn't excommunicate that guy 40 years ago. That's the only reason we're here. It's because of your dereliction of duty that we're even here. And we all see this across the board when we see the bishops are like, what are they doing? They don't even do the stuff they're supposed to do. And then when they, they shouldn't do stuff, they're like, what are you doing that for? And so this gives us an indicator that we have to be praying consistently for the bishops and the priests, because if you don't, they're just going to start acting nutty. That's just the nature of the beast. They're going to start acting strange. In the old rite, before Bugnini got his fingers on the thing, under Pius XII, there was actually a prayer that we would say every single day for the protection and for the well-being of the Holy Father, every day during Lent, every day. We stop praying for him, and then we wonder why he's acting like a nut at times. By the way, he's still the Holy Father. We still have to have reverence for him. That's not the issue. The issue is, if we don't pray for him, we can't expect them to act properly, because we've got to keep demons out of their hair, basically. Okay. And they're the ones that have, they're the ones under attack. The vitriol that demons have for the local ordinary, that's the name for the local bishop, is so palatable. You just bring that guy's name up during a session where the demons are manifested during possession and solemn exorcism, and the absolute vitriol they have on their face and hatred they have for him, even if he's a liberal and he's bad, they just hate his guts. But this tells you that they'll do anything they can. Now, obviously, they're on a short leash, but sometimes God, people keep doing bad things, and eventually we're going to end up with bad leaders, etc. We all know that story. Okay, so the point being is we have to pray for them if we don't want them because they can block the bishops from seeing the proper things to do. And then they can also emotionally affect their judgments so that they end up making the wrong kinds of decisions. And so the part of the fighting for the faith it's keeping demons out of, the, out of the hair of the ones who are supposed to be teaching us the faith. Their job is to adhere to the tradition, what the church has, as St. Lorenz says, has everywhere and always and in all cases always taught, but they're all departing from it. Not all, a lot of them. But the, this is a very key issue because of the fact that if we don't do our part to keep, if the faithful don't keep this, then we just can't expect the priests and the bishop to do what they're supposed to do. So they can block them from actually seeing and actually leading their Catholic faith. This also, you find this also in the concrete living out of individual people's lives in the, uh, in the parish. One of the, the, the exorcist who taught me, initially taught me, because once I was asked to be the exorcist in Omaha, I called this guy up and I said, you know, I'd like a little bit more training. I had actually talked to him somewhat extensively, but it was from an academic point of view. I just was interested in how this stuff works on an academic level. Had no interest in getting into exorcism. It's kind of interesting because I told God uh, two weeks before I was asked to be an exorcist, make me a man of prayer. Three months after I was an exorcist, I said to him, this isn't quite what I had in mind. <laughs> All right. But I, he said to me, he said, hey, I want to teach you something which might be really helpful, because at the time I was still doing parish work. And he says, I call it fishing. I'm like, okay, what is it? He said, if I'm sitting in the confessional, and I know there's people in the, in the, in the church and no one's coming to confession, I will start saying binding prayers against any demons that are keeping people from coming to confession. He said, it's like clockwork, and I tried it. It is like clockwork. Within a minute, there's some guy who comes busting into the confessional. Father, I wasn't going to go to confession, but 
I taught this actually to a priest that was at a university. He was the head of a Newman Center at a university. And he started doing that binding prayer against any demon that was keeping the students from getting to confession. He said every time he did that, within three days, he would have someone come to confession who hadn't been to confession in years. They can literally emotionally block. That tells us how weak we are. But they can block people from living their Catholic faith. Okay. So... The other thing that demons try to do is they try and block the actual propagation of the faith. They try and make sure that there's all sorts of error. As I mentioned before, every demon is a Catholic. Not one of them is a heretic. I mean, they all know exactly what the church teaches, and they know it's true, but they don't. They, they refuse to accept it. But that means also that when it comes to uh, the, the faith, they know that, uh, you know, uh, without faith, you cannot be saved. doesn't mean it's the only thing you have to have. Ultimately, you have to have the, uh, be in the state of grace. But they know that if you can derail people's faith, then you can, in fact, block them from getting into heaven. This is a, a key point. When the demons talk, they basically admit that everybody in heaven is a Catholic. That doesn't mean only Catholics get to heaven. It just means if a Protestant manages to be saved, he gets to be Catholic pretty quick before he gets into heaven. Okay. But this is an important thing because it helps us to realize that this, and why is that the case? How can you see God if you have air intellectually? Because the beatific vision is God taking himself and pressing it on our intellect. That's what the beatific vision consists in. We see him face to face intellectually. As a result of that, how can, how can you press something that is in error about something up against something that is absolutely, infinitely pure? You can't do it. It's the same reason why we have to have rectitude of the will. This is why Martin Luther was just fundamentally wrong about his whole approach to religion. So, the point being is, is that they can... Their goal is to derail people's faith, and there's two ways that they do it. The first is by spreading heresy and making sure that the priests are un that teach heresy are unencumbered in that process. One of the biggest mistakes in my own estimation, in fact, I'm somewhat benign to the guy, obviously, because he made it to heaven because they de declared him a saint, but St. John the 23rd basically made a decision. He said, we will not police the doctrinal integrity at the Second Vatican Council. We have never recovered. And the reason being is, is because when the highest authority of the church, whose authority is to do that, capitulates his authority, it's, it's just a matter of time before the whole church ends up modernist, which it has, for the most part. I mean, they're still faithful Catholics. So they make sure that all this stuff becomes confusing and that we don't know what to believe and that we actually have this idea that, you know, I can believe what I can believe and you can believe what you can believe. One of the things I always tell in virtually every single conference I give about the diabolic is that demons do not work off of the subjective. They could care less what you think about God. They could care less how you feel about the aspects of Catholic religion. They don't care what you honestly believe, even about your own behavior. They could care less. And the reason being is because they know that if you commit a sin, even if it's the volitionally you didn't know what you were doing, you gravely offend God objectively, and there are certain objective effects of sin that naturally follow. They just naturally follow. And this is one of the, and so they know, and what is that? What is that? Well, one of the effects that's objective in every sin, because it's objectively disordered. In reality, it is disordered. There might not be everything going on upstairs that's necessary to make it fully volitionally moral sin, but objectively speaking, it's disordered in reality. That objective disorder is the domain of Satan. That is his domain, the disordered. And so they don't care. I mean, ultimately, they would like to get you to commit mortal sin. But if they can't get that, they don't care. 
But the important point about this is, is that there's no such thing as Catholic, 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 I can't even say it, cafeteria Catholicism. There's no such thing. The church has an objective core of beliefs that you must believe in order to be saved, and they know that. And they will do everything to cause the confusion and get people to think it's up to them to decide how this stuff works. One time, this one woman, I was um, visiting this uh, couple, and they had a daughter who was nice enough. And she, uh, we started talking about God, and for 15 minutes, she's like, I think God, and I think God this, and I think God that. I think God is this, and I think he's that. Of course, all of it was just completely ridiculous. And at the end of it, I just, I'm thinking to myself, she's so far off the rails that she can't even get her back on the rails. So I said to her, you know, I have an idea. And she says, what's that? Why don't we ask God what he thinks of himself? And she says, well, that's a novel idea. And I'm like, no, it's called revelation. God revealed himself to us so that we would actually know what we are to believe. It's on his terms. But this is my point, though, is they work off of the objective. So the goal is to derail people's faith. Now, faith, even though it's infu- the virtue of faith is infused in the intellect, St. Thomas Aquinas says that God has to give us an actual grace in the will to move the intellect to give that assent. And how do they block that? They block it by upsetting us emotionally. If you look at the state of the church, people will just like, yeah, it's pretty bad. And it just seems to keep getting worse and worse and worse. There's more and more confusion. And every time you turn around, the news media isn't helpful. You know, every time a priest gets accused of something, whether he's guilty or not, they make this guy out to be the most horrible person that ever walked the face of the planet and make, make, him, they make him look like he makes Hitler look like a little angel and an altar boy, right? And so they're doing that in order to tear the church down. And over the course of time, people have just become confused. Shutting down the churches for two years didn't help. People became confused, especially now that in most dioceses they've gone back to imposing the obligation to go to Mass on Sunday and Holy Day is of obligation, and most people just like, yeah, whatever. I mean, most, I don't know of a single diocese that's back to the original numbers. The level of confusion is just off the charts. Then, of course, you have magisterial members who are constantly contradicting and saying things, and then, of course, they're not leading good moral lives, which ends up getting out. And then we end up, people end up emotionally finding it painful. That's a normal human reaction to something you love. If you really love the church and you love the faith, you're going to actually, these things are going to be painful. But if you don't have the virtue of mortification and can suffer well, it's going to start affecting that pain, that emotional pain is also going to affect your judgment. We're starting to see this. I'm sure most people here have come across people because of the stuff that's happened in the church come across people who just say, that's it, I just can't take it, and they stop going to church. That's the goal. Stop leaving the Catholic faith. That's how they they fight against it. Okay. This is the inversion of what the angels can do. People say, you live an interesting life, Father. Quite frankly, dealing with demons is pretty mundane. After a while, it's the same one-trick pony over and over again. At first, it's kind of like, well, that was good. But then after a while, you're like, okay, there we see that again. Oh, there's that again. You know, they're, it's, they're, they're always the same. Their psychology is completely locked into a certain thing, and their patterns of behavior are always the same. Now, sometimes if you don't know what you're looking at, those patterns can seem a little confusing. But they're not even that interesting over the course of time. In fact, when you find out, because sometimes during sessions, if the case drags out for any length of time of possession, and you're trying to get the person liberated, usually the sin for which the demon was damned will get said, stated. And you find out that what they chose was literally a figment of their imagination. Well, you know, over the course of time, you're just like, people's imagination, even demons' imagination, just isn't that interesting. What I find interesting is what you learn about the saints in God and the church. I tell people being an exorcist is like being on the receiving end of a sewer pipe. As one exorcist that worked with us for a while, he said, basically, it's changing the diapers of the church. Okay. But I like the sewer pipe analogy better for this reason. 
Yeah, what you're receiving is sewage. You're dealing with some of the worst, most evil, disordered, the levels of depravity that you hear these demons enunciate and their thinking patterns sometimes takes a bit of prayer to climb out of. But what happens is, is over the course of the time of enduring the exorcisms, what happens is you start to catch these little glimpses of what's going on on the other side of the equation. So I tell people, yeah, it's a sewer pipe because it's just like a sewer pipe. Sometimes women lose their wedding rings down the drain and it gets, comes down and then you see these little gems floating down the sewer pipe once in a while. Okay. Recently I did a conference on what Satan, why Satan fell in relationship to Our Lady. He said she, he fell because when he saw her, she was so absolutely beautiful. And he's talking about her interior life, not the physical life, her interior life, even though she was physically beautiful as well, but her interior life. He said she was so absolutely beautiful, I knew once I saw her, because that was what he was presented at the time of his choice. In fact, he even said that his originally assigned task, the reason he was called Lucifer, which means light bearer, is because he was to enlighten the mind. His primary task was to enlighten the mind of the Blessed Virgin Mary to make her even more sacrificial than she was. And he said when he saw her interior life, that was his assigned task, when he saw her interior life, he said he saw the absolute perfection of her sacrifice, that her sacrifice was absolutely pure. He said when he saw that, he said she never counted the personal cost in a sacrifice to God. And then he said, and it was perpetual. Her entire life, day after day, it was constantly never counting the personal cost, sacrificing herself to God. And he said, when he saw that, he said, I only got one shot. And he said, I knew I would always be second best. And he just said, I won't have anything to do with it. So the point being is, is that hearing that, seeing how beautiful she is interiorly. There is no creature that exists that has her degree of beauty. In fact, the saints say that that perpetual sacrifice of Our Lady is so beautiful that her beauty is greater than all of the saints, all of the martyrs, all of creation combined. That if God had to choose between the totality of creation and Our Lady, he would choose her. That's how beautiful we're talking. That's why his relationship with her is fundamentally different than it is with anybody else. Because the demons and the angels, even the good angels, only sacrificed once, but she is the only human being that perpetually sacrificed and never once counted the personal cost. The rest of us just always count it all the time. Or other times, you know, you'll hear about the various aspects of the saints. One case that I actually had was St. Joan of Arc was the nemesis of this demon. So you find out which demons have which nemesis. Now, Satan has a variety of different nemeses. In fact, one time, <laughs> one time he, was, uh, he was acting up because it was the feast of St. Catherine of Siena. And so I just asked St. Catherine of Siena to come down and afflict the guy. And he just gets all sorts of tore up. And so finally, I come at, it, it, it's, it, he wouldn't tell me why. And then it dawned on me. I said, wait a minute. You aren't the guy that got kicked out of the guy in the public square by Catherine of Siena, were you? And he just went bananas. All right, so you see this side of it. You know that Catherine of Siena had cast out this demon from this guy in a public square. And we, we know, now we know who it is, right? So you get these little gems like that. But St. Joan of Arc, and this, this was a very interesting thing. St. Joan of Arc was actually, and then I'll get to how the angels and the saints aid us in the fight for the faith. St. Joan of Arc was his nemesis. And in this particular case of possession, it was Satan, who, as I mentioned before, but he, his, his primary aspect of his personality that was coming out in this case. So if you get a demon that's pretty high level, different cases, you'll, you'll see different facets of the demon's personality. But in this particular case, what came out 
was the reason St. Joan of Arc was his nemesis had to do with a line that St. Joan of Arc said. So if you read the rehabilitation trials, you can actually read Mark Twain's book on her because it's so close to the rehabilitation trials and it's actually a little easier to make sense of it. But in there, she, uh, she, they asked her, what are you afraid of? Because she was valiant in war, right? I always tell everybody, leave it to take a woman, an 18-year-old woman, to man up the French. All right. Okay. But anyway, the point being is she was valiant in war. And so they're, they're looking at, they, they said, what are you afraid of? And she said, treason. In this particular case, Satan was reacting and was taking his punishment under the aspect that he is the one who incites people to commit treason through ambition. Think of that in our geopolitical situation. We have treachery all over the place in our country. And why is it? It's for ambitious sake. That's the, that is the hallmark of Satan. The bishop who burned St. Joan of Arc at the stake did so because he wanted, he was committing treason against his own country, because he was French, because he was cooperating with the English. He was committing treason against his own country because in doing so, he was being promised a, dish, a higher bishopric, treason through ambition. The point in all this is that when you see the, the, the real interesting side of things is the side of the saints. I was mentioning to people earlier before we started this, I said, you know, you can be the worst speaker on the planet. And you talk about Satan and people find you interesting, right? But in point and fact, they're not the ones that are interesting. After a while, they get boring. What's really interesting is all the different facets that you see in relationship to some, some aspect of God's perfection. In fact, when it came to um, Satan, when he said that you know, when he saw this beauty of Our Lady, later, I was, his, the reason he was reacting is because he was reacting to the title of Our Lady, Speculum Justitiae, which is Mirror of Justice. And when I realized, I, I pieced it together, I said, so what you really saw in Our Lady was him, wasn't it? Referring to God the Father. And he said, yes, that's why I wanted to be God. The power, the ability to subvert, to destroy everything, that's purely secondary. I wanted to be God because I wanted his beauty for myself. But that tells you, if you look at it from a certain point of view, it tells you how absolutely beautiful God the Father is, how absolutely beautiful he is. And this is something that when you start to contemplate these sides and you start learning about the, the virtues of the saints, like I mentioned with Our Lady and a perpetual sacrifice, which, by the way, is part of justice. It's a sub justice has a subvirtue called religion, and one of the acts of religion is sacrifice. But it helps you to realize the perfections of the saints and how God was working in their lives. And you begin to realize that there's a whole side to the spiritual life that we don't even see. I tell people being an exorcist is, is good in this sense, in the sense that you get to have a mystical life without being a saint, right? You, get to, you hear about all these things, you see all these things, the demons are talking about all this wonderful stuff. Of course, they're also talking about a lot of ugly stuff. But they're, they're, you're hearing these things about the saints, that side of heaven, that side of paradise, that side of the spiritual life that is so far beyond our comprehension, as St. Paul said, no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor has man comprehended the good things that are in store for him. It's so far beyond us. And you just get these little glimpses here and there. You also realize as an exorcist how absolutely faithful God is to hearing our prayers. I mean absolutely faithful. One of the things that I always have found, it's almost jarring in a sense. You'll ask God the Father, you'll say something, or even ask Christ or the Holy Spirit or some saint, you know, you'll ask some saint to do something, and you, you just literally, you can even do it mentally. This actually happened on two occasions that I noted. One was with Padre Pio. I asked Padre Pio, this demon wouldn't sit still. So I just said mentally to Padre Pio, would you get this guy under control? 
And the woman just goes, wham, down on the ground, and she's writhing around and writhing around. Later, I ask her what happened. She says, I don't know, but I could feel his foot on my back. But you realize that they're there listening. One time, people ask, have you ever been afraid during an exorcism? And the answer is twice. The first was the first time that I actually did one because I thought, I hope I don't do something really stupid. But the second time was that when... And I, I tell this quite a bit because it gives, it gives us a sense of the reality and that people have deluded themselves, even in Catholic thinking. What happened was, this demon would not obey. So I turned to God the Father and I said, punish him in a way he has never been punished before. And the person that was possessed was a woman. She goes down on the ground and completely, completely transforms into a man and starts screaming, not much louder than I am now. But that scream literally shook the church. My sacristan, who is in the other end of the church, jumps up and goes running out because he thinks it's an earthquake. But it shook the church, even though it wasn't very loud. And what caused the fear was not the demon. What caused the fear is I could see in his face that's what hell looks like. The level of suffering this guy had was absolute. And... Uh, his, I, could, I realized in that moment the exactitude of God's justice. So we all like to think that God is this fuzzy little furry thing that is just so kind and wonderful that everyone's going to get to heaven because everything is just hunky-dory. He's infinitely just and infinitely merciful. In this life, he desires that we're in his, under his mercy. He desires it But in the next life, there is no mercy. In heaven, you don't need it, and in hell, you ain't going to get it. And you see it. The demons will even talk about how brutal their suffering is. Later, I asked, I commanded this demon to tell me, what did he show you? What did you see? And he said, he showed me myself. That was the degree of suffering he had just in looking at himself let alone considering the fact that he's never going to get to see God, etc. So, how do we have the angels and the saints help us? It really boils down to this. Because the demons can invert everything that the angels can do, then the angels can do the same thing, except for the side of the good. So, the angels can actually do something which the demons don't do. They have the capacity, but St. Thomas says that they never do because it's ordered towards the truth. But there's two things that they primarily do. The angels can introduce images into our imagination to give us clarity regarding the things that pertain to the faith. And so you can ask them to guide me, give me both on the side of, um, help me to see the truth of this particular aspect of the church, or to see the various truths of the church, enlighten my mind, just help me to see those. Also, they can move our emotions to some degree, but they can put these things in our mind to motivate us even to live our Catholic faith and to fight for it. They can give us a deep sense of what we need to do to fight for the faith based upon our state in life. But they can also enlighten the mind. Now, illumination has a very specific function. Remember when I was telling you that there's this immaterial part of your intellect? And that's the one that actually has understanding and judgment and things of that sort, as opposed to, say, association, which is done by the brain. Well, what the angels can do is they can introduce an image into your imagination, and then St. Thomas says they can fortify your intellect so that you're able to see more clearly the truth that pertains to the faith. And this is something that we can actually do. We need, obviously, we're not relying on our guardian angels very well because people are really going off the rails in their faith. But you can ask them, illuminate my mind so I can see the truth of this. Help me give greater clarity. Help me study. Help me do all these things so that I, in the end I can know the faith and be able to fight for it. Help me to know prudence because they can introduce an image into our imagination so that we know when to talk and when not to talk, or when to do something and when not to do something. So this is, a, this is one of the things that they can actually do. We can also ask them to protect other people. And to, uh, to do certain things. You know, uh, I have a book that's coming out, but I, there's a chapter where I talk about guardian angels and all the different kind of guardian angels, which most people are unaware of. 
But one of them is that every time, once a priest gets ordained to the priesthood, he gets another guardian angel. And the uh, people who have authentic mystical experiences have actually seen them around priests. There was one situation where I had where this woman uh, was possessed. She calls me and she says, I'm stuck, I'm pinned to the floor. And I was just about to get onto an airplane. And I'm like, well, I can't do an exorcism right here getting in line, right? So I said, look, it's only an hour flight. I'll call you as soon as I get off. I hung up and I said to the guardian angel, my priest said, go help her. So I get off the plane, I call her. I said, are you still pinned? She said, yes. So I said a binding prayer, the demon immediately left, uh, let her up, and then she says, I have to go, and she hangs up. I'm like, okay, is that something I said? <laughs> five minutes later, she calls back and she says, I hadn't been to the bathroom in five hours. Fair enough, all right. <laughs> and then she said, by the way, did you send the guardian angel of, my, of your priesthood to me? And I said, yeah, how did you know? Because I didn't tell her that, I just said it mentally to my guardian angel. And he said, he appeared to me after you hung up and held my hand during the whole ordeal. And so this tells you that they can actually assist us in a variety of different ways of the spiritual battle. They can protect us in the spiritual battle in relationship to fighting for the faith. They can actually protect us even in our own families, etc. Every family not only has the guardian angels of each people in the in the. Uh, family, but they also, if it's a valid marriage, have a guardian angel of, their, of the marriage that God actually assigns to it. So the point being is, is that they can actually help us with all that. They can actually, help, as I mentioned, help us to see the truths of the Catholic faith because that you're not going to fight for something unless you have a conviction of how true what the church teaches is. You're just not going to fight for it unless you see how true it is. We can also, but Okay, so they can help other people. You can actually help them. Yeah, you know, ask your guardian angels. Go and, you know, assist the bishop. Assist the priest. Help him. Do what you can for him. Pray for him. Intercede for him. You can ask your guardian angel to intercede for you and for other people. You can ask the saints to do the same thing so that the bishop's head will start, will start to clear a little bit. Yeah, I think if we can get the demons out of their hair for a little while, people, the bishop's thinking will clear up. At least I hope so. But the point being is, is that we have to do our part. We even see this in relationship to people. One of the uh, more common things that I see is people who will contact me and say, Father, my mother is dying, and she refuses to see a priest. What do I do? Because she says, I've been praying rosaries, I've been praying all this stuff, I'm doing this, and, that, and nothing seems to happen. So then I'll just tell her, start saying binding prayers against any demon that's, un, that's blocking her from being able to see a priest. And then she says the prayers. Very often as a priest, I would do this when I would go to the hospitals. If the person says, I don't want to see a priest, I would just stand outside the, um, the person's room and do chapter 3, which is the minor exorcism that Leo Thirteenth wrote. I would just do that over the person. Usually within 5, 10 minutes, the guy's like, okay, I'll see you, right? But you can ask the, your guardian angels and stuff to keep these demons at bay. If you have a strong devotion to your guardian angel and the guardian angels within your family, it can help significantly in that regard. Asking the saints, especially if you're struggling with a particular um, defect in your life, find out which saint is the patron in that, in that regard and ask them to give you the grace, or not give you the grace, to petition the grace so that our lady gives it to you so that you can actually live that part of your faith so that you're not falling all the time. So when it comes to, live, uh, to fighting for the faith, it's not just that we've got to clear the air of the demons. We have to be willing to suffer. One of the things that you see in relationship to the saints, especially the martyrs, is they're willing to go to death rather than commit even a venial sin. Look at Maria Goretti. Most people today would rather just let a rapist do his thing and have it over with so that they could survive than to fight him and say, no, I refuse. And so there are times, of course, there's not much they can do. I'm not saying, suggesting that there are times that they can't. But there's also times when people, should, that people can actually be willing to go to their death and even commit a single sin. There's worse things than death. Even possession, I tell people, look, there's worse things than possession. You can get to heaven and be possessed. 
Of course, when she died, the possession's broken, but there are people that have actually died in the state of grace who were possessed, made it to heaven. There's worse things. Sin is the worst, and especially mortal sin. So, what you need to basically be doing is making sure, A, that you're staying in the state of grace, etc., but you can start asking your angels to help you develop the virtues and things of that sort so that you can begin this fight. It's not just a matter of keeping the demons out of people's hair. We have to have a zeal for the faith. What zeal? St. Thomas says that zeal is the opposite of spiritual sloth, and spiritual sloth is basically an unwillingness to engage spiritual things because they're arduous and painful. And people would rather have the complacency of their spiritual life to be, be in this pleasurable state of just being comfortable rather than actually fighting for the faith. Now, this fighting still requires prudence because the better part of valor is prudence, you know, is discretion, as they say, which is another name for prudence. The point being is, is that we can not just clear the air in relationship to demons, we have to have this zeal. St. Thomas says that zeal is the effect of charity. You know, if you ask the average person, do you love God? Do you honestly love Him? I mean, really? That's a question you ask that people say, oh yeah, no, no, no. How much do you really love God? Even more than yourself. How much do you, do you really love Him? If you really love him, why are you doing these things? Why do you offend him? Why don't you try and do reparation to make up for him? If you, if your spouse had done, if you had done something to offend your spouse, and you realized Ooh, that was bad, you'd feel bad about it, and you would because you love them, and you'd actually go and do something to make it up. But most people go their entire lives doing zero reparation for their sins, zero. And so you have to ask yourself, how much do you really love him? Because if you love him, St. Thomas says, then you will have a zeal for those things that pertain to him, that pertain to the Catholic faith. And zeal is a drive, it's a motivation to obtain the things of God. And these are the things that are arduous and difficult, the good of the church, to know more about your faith. One of the signs that you can tell people don't really love God, if you really love somebody, you want to know as much as you can about them. Because every time you learn something about them, it's another little delight you have in relationship to them. But most people hardly know their catechism today, which tells you, how can you honestly expect for saints to rise up in the church and have the zeal to fight for the church, to get this situation straightened out, to get the demons out of the church's hair, to get this, the whole situation of the heresy that's afflicting the church and all the moral corruption, if you won't even have the love of God to look at a catechism? You just can't expect it. So how do you grow in this zeal? Well, St. Thomas says you have to make acts of charity. What's acts of charity? It doesn't necessarily mean being nice to people, although that can be part of it too. It's telling God you love him at regular intervals. Just tell him. He said, well, I don't feel like I love him. It doesn't matter. You just keep saying it over the course of time. He'll infuse that greater virtue, and then you will love him more. And as that goes on, then at a certain point, you'll have a strong, strong desire to do whatever you possibly can for the church. Whether it's teaching, you may, not, may or may not be called to that. You know, when we look at churches like this that were built back in the day, they were built by people literally foregoing lunches and giving their penny to the church for that day. Literally, that's how some of these churches were honestly built. The sacrifices that people actually made. That same thing is actually true in relationship to the church. If you want the church to get straightened out, then you need to start doing not just prayers, that's your penny, but you need to start offering up, you need to be to suffer well. You need to start offering your prayers, sufferings, and good works, but your sufferings, you need to be willing to suffer and offer that up for the sake of the church. We're not going to get out of this problem without a boatload of suffering because we've gotten into this problem because we wouldn't suffer. And so we really need to be willing to suffer. And we should offer that. Said so Maybe that's what God's calling to do. Maybe that's part of the zeal. I'm going to offer up my suffering for the conversion of a priest who's gone wayward. Or for the sakes that the bishop receives a grace to see that, you know, don't shut the church down during COVID. Or don't do this. Or don't do that, etc. Or do this. What's good, for the, what's good for the church. So you have to be willing to offer up your prayers, suffering, and good works. 
but you also can ask your guardian angels and the saints to help you in that regard. One of the things that God does is he predetermines, he decrees from all eternity that before, and we'll end with this, it reminds me of that line from Fulton Sheen. People said, oh, keep going, keep going. And he said, look, it's better that you said yourself he quit too soon than he had three good chances to quit. Okay. <laughs> Merit, God predetermines from all eternity that in order for some particular thing to be accomplished, a certain amount of merit is going to have to be achieved. And merit is the reward for the prayers, sufferings, and good works that we do. And he determines that there has to be a certain amount of it. And it, because of that predetermination, it takes us as human beings sometimes a long time to reach that level. But if you get other people praying for it, and if you start getting the saints and the angels, you know, interceding for them, then they can merit what's necessary in order to get it done more quickly. And this is the side of the angelic side. We simply do not employ the angels and the choirs of angels enough on our behalf. We really need to do that. We really need to be praying and asking them. I tell people, look, God likes being ganged up on, so the more people you can get to do this. One time, this one woman was complaining to me, and she says, why is it every time you pray for something, you get it? I said, well, first of all, that's not true. But she was noticing I would pray for stuff, and I would get it. And I said, it's very simple. You start this website, and then you put these conferences out, and then you tell people you have to pray for my intentions if you're going to listen to these. So that every time I pray for something, all the, I can get all these prayers of all these people praying for this thing, right? doesn't say a thing about me. It tells me, hey, man, there's a lot of people listening to this stuff. I'm not sure how many are actually doing the prayers. But the point being is, is that it's a matter of gang warfare relationship. You really need to get you know, all the angels and the saints to get these things and to fight for the faith of your, your own faith, the faith of your children, the faith of your spouse, the faith in your family, the faith in your church, your parish, in the diocese, and in the church at large. You really need to do this. When we stand before God, you know, when, sometimes when I see these priests and bishops tearing the faith down, I'll pray for them, not because appetitively I feel drawn to it, but because ultimately I don't want to stand before God at the final judgment, having neglected helping this person who, had I done so, he may have done the right thing. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.